Amen. Some weeks feel like you just need to pray and go home, right? Uh, hey, uh, glad you're here at 1122. If you got your Bibles, I hope you do. We're going to go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. It'll take me about 15 minutes to get there, but you go ahead and get started. Uh, we are in our fourth week of the series called Ecclesia. Ecclesia is the Greek word that Jesus used that today we translate as church. Uh, in the book of Matthew, he takes the disciples to this place called Caesarea Philippi. It would be like the Las Vegas of its day. And he announces there upon this rock, the public declaration uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we thought if you're going to be a part of this ecclesia, a part of this church or this movement, you need to know what you're at. And so we spent four weeks on our core values. The next four weeks we'll spend on our vision. And so uh, this week we're talking about our fourth of core values, which is sacrificial love. Now, here's the problem when we talk about love. First of all, our culture does not help us at all. And everybody thinks they know what we're talking about. In 1993, I was asked this very, very significant question. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Oh, no. And everybody begins to chime in. Tina Turner says, what's love got to do with it? Def Leppard taught us that love bites. We found out you can lose that loving feeling. I've heard that love is a battlefield. You can be addicted to love. Boys and men said they can make it. We ain't going to sing that one. Uh, <clears throat> the Beatles said all you need is love. Then they broke up. Maybe because it must have been love, but it's over now. So in other words, we don't know what love is. And in English, we got one word to describe all the kinds of love that there are, right? We say things like, I love Jesus, and I love the Bulldogs, glory to God, and I love my wife, and I love tacos. <laughs> and all of that is just one word for all of those things. Now, we've got one word. The Bible's got four it's got a word called storge, which means like affectionate love. That's like, I love to go to the movies with you. I love ice cream. That's what that love means. Uh, there's the word phileo. Maybe you know uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And so phileo is like a friendship kind of love. And then there's a Greek word called eros, which is where we get the word erotic from. And it means romantic love. It's the lighter fluid of all love. You square a little that on there, the flame blows up, feels like love, at least for a minute. And then agape love is a divine, covenantal, sacrificial love. And so <clears throat> in each of our values, I had to put a descriptor word in front of the value so that we could fully understand what we were talking about. So the first week, Pastor Britt walked us through what it means to have integrity. Integrity means that you are just, you're a one, you're a whole person, not a compartmentalized person. So it does no good to like polish up the, the, the countertop without dealing with what's in the drawers below. But I don't, it's not okay to just be like at one with humanity. That's a big waste of time. And so we talk about biblical integrity. And then the, the second week, the, 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 the uh, core value is character, but it's not enough to just be men and women of character. You could do the right thing according to your conscience or the law your whole life and still live a Christless eternity. So we talk about Christ-like character. And then last week, we talked about courage, but it's not enough just to have courage. Some of you do a bunch of stuff that's really crazy, but you call it courageous, like jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. That's just dumb, all right? So we're not looking about, it's not like God's calling us just to be brave for the sake of bravery, but we need spirit-led courage. And then this week it's sacrificial love, and really that phrase is redundant because love does demand a sacrifice. Now the Bible describes love really from cover to cover. I'm gonna shotgun you with a bunch of them. Romans 5, 8, 
One of my favorite verses on love, it says, but God shows, and the way I memorized it in the New International Version back in the day was, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, he is before all things. That before you ever tried to get your act together, before you ever said, you know what, we're gonna start going back to church. Before you ever stop trying to cuss so much or drink so much during the week or whatever that thing you're trying to do right now to make you a better version of you, before any of that, while you and I were still sinners, Christ demonstrated his love for us in this. He goes to the cross. You see, he is first, he loves first, he goes first. So that's love, it starts with God, it doesn't start with you. First John 3, 16. Now we're gonna spend a whole lot of time on John 3, 16, but a lot of people don't know First John 3, 16. It says this, by this we know love. You wanna know what love is? Here it is, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In other words, loved people love people. The reason that we love is because he first loved us. That we should be a conduit of the love of God, not a cul-de-sac of the love of God. That his love should pour out of who he is onto us and through us to the people around us. <clears throat> One time in the Gospels, some lawyers come up to Jesus to try to trick him because that's what they do. Amen, amen. And they say, all right, Jesus, of all the commandments in the entire Bible, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus takes two Old Testament scriptures and he sandwiches them together and he says, all right, here's the most important commandment. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. I know you have them all memorized, but let me just read them just in case you don't. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then the second half of Leviticus 19, 18 says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself for I am the Lord. You see, Jesus says the most important thing of all the scriptures, of all the commandment is to love, love God and love each other. Let me tell you the problem, like with modern day evangelicalism, especially with a modern mindset. You see, like 300 AD, a bunch of church fathers get together, they write the Nicene Creed, and we're really into creeds because it's got all these doctrinal truths and statements, very, very important. About who, about who the triune God is and that, that Jesus was born of a virgin Mary and he was suffered under Pontius Pilate and crucified, dead and buried and on the third day he was resurrected. All of that is true. You know what the creeds leave out? They never talk about love. They just talk about stuff that we believe in, not this love relationship. And Jesus said the most important thing, the most important thing is love. 1 Corinthians 13, one through three, many of you had this read in your weddings and I know because I read it. It says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, you know what the tongues of angels are? They're accents like mine. I'm pretty sure that's what that means. <laughs> so if they speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. Don't just read by that like that's poetry. Like if you had the kind of faith where you could walk up to a mountain, you'd be like, get out of here. And then it did. But you don't have love. The Bible says that's nothing. So it would be like this. Can you imagine? What if I had that kind of faith? 
You think it's crowded in here now. Can you imagine if you came next week and I preached the kind of sermon that had prophetic powers and all understanding of mysteries and knowledge, and I had the faith that when I preached, I was like, everybody watch this, and I could just levitate myself up off the ground. Not that little cheap like Chris Angel trick. I'm talking about up here at the head of the cross kind of thing. What would you do? You would get, you would leave. You think our church is growing now. You would leave, you'd be like, you got to come to my church. That brother floats around during the sermon, okay? I mean, he'd be jammed out. And, and Paul in 1 Corinthians would have us know, even when you float around good sermons, if you do that without love, you're nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is important. Husbands, Ephesians 5, 25, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You can, and the way Jesus loved us is he laid down his life. You can never take and love at the same time. Romans 12, 10, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. <clears throat> Do you know why today you pulled into a parking lot that had a parking team and a reach team and people holding the doors and greeting you and trying to honor you because we're trying to love one another and outdo one another in, in honor. John 13, 35. By this, people will know that you are my disciples. By your 1122 sticker. No. In fact, some of you need to take our sticker off your car because you don't drive with love. And uh, you're defaming the name of Jesus and our church. That's why many of our staff people aren't allowed stickers. So it says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now, this is after he describes or defines love. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not boast, love is not self-seeking, love is not easily angered, love keeps no record of wrongs. He goes through the whole spiel, and then at the end he says, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. The love is greater than hope, the love is greater than faith. Do you know why? Because when we get to heaven, there's no more hope and there's no more faith. Because hope is when you are believing in, looking forward to something. Well, guess what? Heaven is the something. Nobody's gonna roll up to you in heaven and be like, man, you hope to get to heaven? But like, I don't think you know what hope means, okay? We're here. You can quit hoping, you just experience it. And even faith, think about this. Did nobody asks you in heaven, do you believe in Jesus? But he's sitting right there. But love remains. You still love God, we'll still love one another. <clears throat> First John chapter four, verse seven and eight. Beloved, I love that terminology. Beloved, not only is it a title which Christians are given, believers are given, that we are the beloved, but, it, but it's also like a full sentence in and of itself. What if you could hear that title as beloved? That, that the almighty great I am that I am, in Hebrew, that's Yahweh, that a pretty decent translation of the Hebrew name for God is to be, and be loved. That's who we are, loved by God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. The definition for love, what is love? Love is, love is not God, but God is love. C.S. Lewis says, if you try to make love a God, it becomes a demon and will let you down. But God is love. Here's what this means. This is why this is so important. Theology matters. That God in and of himself is love. 
that God from eternity past, he, he does not have a creator, he is the creator. And from eternity past to eternity future, God, one God is in three persons. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God is in a perfect love relationship with himself. Perfect submission, perfect love, perfect understanding, perfect community. Here's a big part of what this means. He doesn't need anything from you. God is not looking around in heaven and be like, I am so lonely. I will create a group of people that will just turn their backs on me for their whole life and I'll call them my children. No, God needs nothing from you. You can never put him in your debt. And so God's love for God's self spills out into creation onto us. And then we are given the capacity to give and receive love because we are image bearers of him. You see, this is important. This is important because if God is not a triune God, then community was not available until he made Adam and Eve. And that's not right. God in and of himself is love. And it's just who he is. In John chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus says this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Later on in fifteen twelve, he says, and this is my commandment. This is right after he says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And this is my commandment, to which everybody's like, all right, well, I love you, so I'm, y'all write this down. This is a new commandment. Actually, he says in one place, it's a new commandment I give you. Can you imagine the disciples been following around Jesus for three years doing crazy stuff, like people walking on water and bringing back dead people? And then Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. They all get out their tablets and they're ready to write this down. New commandment. What's it going to be? Is it sing worship songs or is it? Sacrifice a goat on the third moon and the sixth hill. I mean, what is this? This is important stuff. And he says, this commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13, 13, and greater love has no one than this, that somebody lay down his life for his friends. You see, love sacrifices. It's just what love is. The way I would say it is this, is that you can give without love, but you cannot love without giving of yourself. It's not love until it costs you something. And the moment I think of sacrificial love, the first thing that comes to my mind is all you mamas. (laughs) It is. All right. I, I have been in the room twice with Gretchen when she gave birth to love and it is a mess. All right. People that call it a beautiful thing are liars and the truth is not in them. All right. And what you mamas put your body through for the sake of this ungrateful, undeserving, little chaotic wreck of a thing. Amen? It is years before it ever gets redemptive, is it not? They kind of just ruin your world. And yet, in love, you, you take yourself to the brink of death for the sake of this other little person. Here's the way C.S. Lewis says it in his book called The Four Loves. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly broken. If you want to make of keeping it intact, talking about your heart, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. It's true, right? You ever bury your dog? You hear that? Mm. I know. Now, somebody else's dog dies. Like, hey, it's just a dog. But when it's your dog, you'll be like, shut your face. That's like one of my, that's family. It's just true, right? Your heart hurts. Now, if it's a cat, they're soulless. So that doesn't matter. You just get another one. If it's a dog, it matters. <clears throat> and if you're a cat person, I wouldn't tell anybody if I were you. All right, so. 
but you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. So here's what you do instead. He says, lock your heart, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. You see, there is no love without sacrifice. And maybe the most, um, the most explicit description of sacrificial love is in John chapter 3, John chapter 3. So if everybody would turn there, and also, if you were like a longtime Christian, please don't think that just because we're going to hang out on John three sixteen that somehow that is remedial. You never graduate from the gospel. You, you, you only go deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for our sanctification, but, or not just for our justification, but also our sanctification. We got to continuously be reminded of what a wretch we are and what a great savior we have and what this sacrificial love means for us, not just at the moment of our conversion, but to the day of our glorification when we're face to face with the one who loved us and saved us. And so John chapter three, beginning in verse one, it says, now there was a man of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now here's what you got to know about the Pharisees. The Pharisees get a really bad rap in the New Testament because they earn it. But, but Nicodemus and all the Pharisees, they're very religious people. And man, they know God's word like you don't even know. And the, the word Pharisee meant, it means, um, it means to be separate. And so the idea was, here's what the Pharisees wanted to do. They wanted to know the Old Testament word of God so well that when the Messiah, the Christ, the incarnate son of God, their savior, when he was going to show up on the earth, that they were so ceremonially clean and pure and set apart from this crooked and depraved generation that they would be the very first people to recognize Jesus. How'd that work out? You see, they got so hung up in the rules that they missed the whole point was about a relationship. And the son of God, the God that they've been studying their entire lives is three feet from their nose. They can smell his breath and they can't even recognize that they're in the presence of God. And it wasn't for a lack of trying. Listen, these jokers knew the Bible. They knew it. To be a Pharisee, you had to know, you had to be able to quote every verse in the Old Testament from the very beginning to the very end. And they had a deep, deep, deep love for the law of God. In fact, when they would first go to school, when they were little kids and they, and they all wanted to either be like a rabbi or, or to be a Pharisee, then what their rabbi or their teacher would do is they would show up or they would get this little slate where they would do all their homework on, you know, think like chalk and slate and they'd write Bible verses on it to remember it, etc. And on the first day of school, often what rabbis would do is they would take some honey and they would put it all over their little slate. And the kids were freaking out, man. This was like Christmas Day. They didn't know what Christmas was yet, but it was going to be awesome, okay? This was like Christmas Day for a kid because they couldn't just run to Publix and get like a little bear and like put a dollop on there. That's not how it worked. Um, honey was so precious. I mean, the promised land was called the land flowing with milk and honey. This was a big deal. Many of them had never had honey before. They had just heard of it. And so they would, they would cover their slate. That They would study the word of God on with this honey. And then the rabbi would say, now go ahead and, and eat of the honey and you can think about it. Imagine a bunch of first graders with a whole bunch of sweet tarts or whatever and they're just licking it and getting them all over and it's just an absolute mess and they're thinking this is the greatest day of my life and the rabbi would say something like, and as this honey is sweet to your lips, may the word of God be sweet to your soul. And they would study and study and study and they knew every, they knew every verse from Genesis to Malachi. Some of you thought you were a good Christian because you knew four verses out of the book of Romans, right? They knew the whole Old Testament. Now, don't tell me you couldn't memorize it. 
Because you still know every word to Ice Ice Baby and you hadn't heard it in like eight years, okay? That's just true. But instead of filling up their minds with that, me too. But they would fill their mind with the word of God. So that's who Nicodemus is. The problem is, though, he knows religion. He just knows, he kind of knows about God. But he's super curious and he shows up. Verse two, it says, this man, Nicodemus, he came to Jesus by night. Maybe because he was embarrassed, maybe because he was afraid, maybe because he was just, you know, he knew that the crowd wouldn't be that big. He says, this man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Which, <clears throat> quite honestly, almost everybody I know would believe the same thing about Jesus here. Even people that's like, hey, look, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in the whole church and Christianity and all that. But everybody I know is pretty good with Jesus. They at least believe he's a teacher and that he came from God. But Jesus does not put up with this. Verse three, and Jesus answered him, which maybe I read the Bible too much, but that always kind of strikes me as funny. Nicodemus did not ask him a question. (laughs) He just comes up and he goes, "Uh, dear teacher, we know where you're from God. Let me answer that. And he's like, what? I didn't really ask anything. (laughs) You see, Jesus always initiates. Jesus always takes it to the level of the heart that matters most. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, underline that, born again, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you've ever heard the phrase born again Christian, this is where it comes from. And so um, what Jesus is doing here, he's going to use this illustration of being born again. And here's why I think there's a whole lot of reasons. One is that a birth is an actual event. There's a line in the sand before birth. That's clear. And then when you have a baby, it's clear, right? And we celebrate that day. That is your birth day. And so when you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, there is this moment where you used to be dead and now you're alive. Also, not only is it an event, it's an event that begins a lifelong process of growing and maturing. I don't know if you know this, but this is important if you're going to be a part of a growing church like 1122, where there's a whole bunch of people that have been born again, a whole bunch of people that have just surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When you give birth, you know what you give birth to? You want to write this down? A baby. Let's see, anybody write it down? Yet churches all the time act like that's the greatest surprise of their entire life. The people that have known Jesus for a minute, that have been born for a minute, we expect these just like 45-year-old grown people to be born. That's not how it works. You know what babies have in common? I mean, they're really selfish. And when they don't get what they want, they cry a lot, okay? And can I just say this? And there's crap everywhere. (laughs) And if you don't like that, you're going to hate this church. Because guess what? we got a whole bunch of new believers around here, people that just met Jesus, they're just born again. God loves them too much to let them be babies their whole life. That's why we're in the discipleship business, not just the conversion business, but it's just true. So there's griping and there's complaining and there's crying and you don't sleep well and there's just crap everywhere. And the moment, the moment that we look around and everybody's just mature, then guess what? We've lost the mission of the church because Jesus said that, that it's, 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 that you're born again into the faith and we need a whole bunch of people that are being born again into Christ. And so that's what he starts with. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Verse four, Nicodemus says to him, now Nicodemus doesn't get it at all. Just right over his head. He's like, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter in a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Don't think about that too long or you can't eat lunch. Okay. It's just awful. 
And so he's looking, he's like, what are you talking about? I just said, you must be from God. And you're talking about a second birth. So Jesus answers him, verse five, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So it's Nicodemus is just looking confused. Like you look at me most weekends, like what? See, but he's saying, he's saying, okay, listen, so there's a water, born of water means like you're, you're physically born and then born of the spirit means you're reborn in Christ. You surrender your life to Christ. And he says, basically, I've heard people say it this way, that if you're born twice, you only die once. And if you're only born once, there's gonna be two deaths. That if you're born physically, we all die. And if you're reborn in Christ, you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, then when you die physically, you are in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. That's what he's saying to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is still confused, kind of scratching his hands. I don't get what you're saying. Verse eight, so Jesus clears it up this way. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Which is Greek for do what? And I think he's totally clueless. He doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. So verse 10, Jesus gets a little frustrated, it seems. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And I think Nicodemus is like, is there somebody with you? What, what is this we and our stuff? But again, Jesus is establishing that he's the second person of the triune God. There's one God in three persons that have existed from eternity past to eternity future. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm not just making this stuff up as a teacher from God. I am God. That's what he's saying. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. In other words, I'm not talking about something that I read about in a book like you did, bro. I am talking about firsthand experience. And I think Nicodemus is still sitting there with a blank stare like you have now. What in the world does this have to do with me? So Jesus, being the master teacher, what he's going to do is he tried the reborn thing. That didn't work. So then he goes to the wind illustration right over his head. And so now what he's going to do is he's going to grab a story from the Old Testament, an actual event from the Old Testament that would be really, really, really familiar to Nicodemus. Why? Because he's a Pharisee and he's an expert in the Old Testament. And so he says, and as Moses, and at this point I think Nicodemus is like, oh, thank you because now I know what we're talking about. I studied Moses in Sunday school for years. All right, let's talk Moses. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, as 21st century Christians, we're like, what is that talking about? What he's doing is he's going back to Numbers chapter 21, particularly verse nine. And what's going on here is because of Israel's disobedience to God, And you know why they disobeyed? Because they were human beings like the rest of us. Because of Israel's disobedience to God, God sends his wrath upon them and they wake up one day and they've got like a tent full of snakes and all these snakes bite the people. And sure enough, they get up and every single person is snake bitten. And here's the thing about being snake bitten. When you're snake bitten, you don't have a problem on the outside. If you're snake bitten, the problem's on the inside. 
The problem is that the venom of the snake is in your blood on the inside of the body. You can get in the tub, you can take a bath, you can shower, you can pray all you want to, but if you don't do something about the inside of you, then there is a problem. And then by God's mercy and grace, he makes a way where there is no way. And so here's what he tells Moses in Numbers 21.9. It says, so Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And if you're just studying the Old Testament, you're like, what in the heck is that for? Because that is pointing to there will be a day when every single person is snake bitten. That's all of us. So we've got a problem on the inside and an outside in cleansing won't work. It's got to be an inside out saving. And so what Jesus does is he says, listen, you remember that episode back with Moses and the snake and the bitten, and so there was going to be a day, he's talking about his crucifixion and resurrection, where I will be lifted up and put on a cross, and everyone that understands that they have the condition of poison in their veins, the poison of sin running through us, if you will not try to cure yourself, but if you will lift your eyes up to me when I am lifted up, then you will be saved and you will have eternal life. And I think it's at this point where it starts to make a little more sense to Nicodemus. And then from that point in the book of Numbers, if you keep going, going through uh, the entire Torah, what you find out is then God establishes a sacrificial system because his people and all people have a sin problem. And so he establishes this sacrificial system. It's what the, most of the whole Old Testament talks about. And, and, and he creates this tabernacle, which eventually becomes like a temple. And in this temple is this little room called the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwells. But God's holiness cannot be entered into by, by unrighteous people like us. So there's this curtain that separates the people, from God, the people of God from the presence of God. And then one time a year, one time a year on this day called the Day of Atonement, you can read about it in Leviticus 16. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would shed the blood of a lamb, sprinkle the blood over the Ark of the Covenant where the law of God was kept, and that blood sprinkled over, it's called the mercy seat of God, that blood would cover over the sin of the Jewish people for one year. And then Jesus shows up. In the book of John, Jesus shows up. And his first cousin, John the Baptizer, he's called John the Baptist, but it's not like Mike the Methodist and Pete the Presbyterian, John the Baptist. It just meant he dunked people. So John the Baptizer, he's in the Jordan River. He's dunking all these people, yelling at everybody, and crowds are showing up. And he says, behold, and he points at his first cousin, Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the whole world. Now, they had, been in a, they had been in a system where another Lamb of God would cover the sin of the Jewish people for one year. And what, what John the Baptist is saying is that system was just pointing to Jesus because he is the Lamb of God, not another Lamb of God. And he's going to take away the sin, not just cover over it, for all the people, not just the Jewish people, and not for just one year, but forever. And so what Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus is, that's me. I am the fulfillment of that sacrificial system. On the cross, when Jesus is dying on the cross and he says, it is finished, what is finished is the full payment for everybody's sin debt. And then he moves into the why. So why did God do it that way? What is God's purpose and what is his plan and what is his heart? And he quotes here, or he, he says the most famous verse probably that, that we all know. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then most people stop there, don't ever stop there. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. If you think that, that coming to church is about you being condemned, then you miss the whole point of the whole thing. 
that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So I want to just unpack in our time remaining, I want to unpack what Jesus was talking about when he declares John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his, I've memorized it as he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. First and foremost, it starts with God. It starts with God, for God. The bookends of the verse are eternity. It starts with God and it ends with eternity. In other words, he is before all things. That God goes first, that God is first, that God loved first, and he loved you first by sending his best in his son, Jesus Christ. That, That this thing starts with God. In other words, you didn't go looking for God. That he is in hot pursuit of you. Which is, and you know why that's such good news? You see, to understand God is a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in perfect love relationship with God's self is this. God did not look around heaven and be like, I am so bored. I need some people that will gather and sing songs to me on Sundays. That is not how it works. God's not sitting around on Saturday night going, I wish the organ would start playing. I can't wait for it. God needs nothing from us, and yet he pursues us in love. I mean, I'd say it this way. Man, when I was a teenager... This was not my idea. I never in a million years thought that I would end up one of you and especially work here. I was crying too, I'm telling you. (laughs) And and I tried to run and reject and flee from God as hard as I could and then the hounds of heaven chased me down and it's like the almighty sovereign God had me in a submission hold from the UFC. And what are your options? Tap, snap, or nap, that's what you got. So I tapped out and here I am. For God, it starts with him, for God so loved that God loves you and that God is love. God is love. He has to be stirred to anger, but God is love. And when the Bible says God loves you, that is not about you. See, that word there so, that word there so, it's hard to translate in English from Greek. It's a connector word. So when you see the word loved, in order to understand what this word loved means, the so connects it to the subject. So the subject defines what this love is about. So how does God love you? God loves you according to the character and nature of God. He's an everlasting God. He's an infinite God. He's an almighty God. He's a a never failing God. That's the kind of love that he loves you with. And it messes us up a little bit because God loves you, not because of you, but because of him. This is very important. It's very different than what we mean when we say, like when I tell my wife, baby, I love you. You know what I mean? I'm really saying, because you are very lovable. And you know, given the right time and space, then I will go on to list many things that I love about her. I love when you sing, I love your face, I love your hair. You know, it's that kind of love here. It's a list of things I love about you. And so sometimes when we think God loves me, we kind of think about me. But... (laughs) Really what this is like, just imagine this. Imagine if a husband and a wife are out here at Jack's Beach, sitting on the beach, watching the sunrise, and be like, baby, I love you so much. Even though you kind of got a horse face a little bit. And you got breath that would melt an hour later. And your legs look like a, like a crippled camel. And you're not that lovable. But because of my love, Overflowing out of me onto you, baby. I love you. That ain't going well, right? (laughs) Nor should it. Don't ever do that. 
But that's kind of how it is when God says, I love you. God, I've told you this before. It's like God runs a Carfax on you and you know what? It comes back broken, busted up, wrecked, lemon, lemon, lemon. And he says, I'll take it. I love you anyway. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. That God so loved the world. <coughs> the world, that includes you. In 1 John now, in 1 John, this is where you gotta do a little uh, Bible study. The book of 1 John chapter two says, do not love this world or the things of this world because all this world has to offer is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And so you're like, okay, well, I got a question. How in the world can 1 John, same guy, how can he write there, don't love the world or the things in this world? But here he says, Jesus says, for God so loved the world. Well, here's the difference. In 1 John, he is talking about the systems of this world. And in John 3, 16, he is talking about the people of this world, that God loves the people of this world and rejects the systems of this world. Most of the time, we adopt the systems of this world and reject the people of this world. And he loves, for God so loved the world. Every people group, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every color, every country, every orientation, every background, every single human has ever breathed. God loved the world that he gave, that he gave. Again, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. That he gave, that love doesn't take, that love gives. That's why I said a couple weeks ago that tolerance is not a biblical value. We are not called to put up with one another. We are called to love one another, bear one another's burdens, lay down our life for one another, not just put up with. For God so loved the world that he gave. And you know what he gave? He didn't give leftovers that he gave his only son. The King James, if, you, if you've ever studied that, the King James says his only begotten son. That word begotten, what they're trying to get at is the Greek word is monogenous. It means like one gene of the same essence. So what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is, I am the second person of the Trinity. I am one with God. And that when God, when he loved this world, he didn't give leftovers, that he gave his best in Jesus Christ that he's first and he loved first and he went first and he did not give leftovers. He gave his best in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus went to the cross, he did not tithe his blood for you. He shed it all for you and me. That, and here's why it's important, man. You've got to understand the foundation of the character and nature of God so that when it shifts gears here and it gets into individually, how do you and I respond that you can respond rightly to God? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, I memorized it as whosoever, whosoever, this is why we're a movement for all people, because whosoever would believe, that's who's invited in, whosoever would believe. Here's what this means. <clears throat> There's not a person within the sound of my voice where you're right here in the room or at Bay Meadows or the sanctuary or listening to this three months from now in your car on iTunes. There's not a person that has ever done something so bad that they are disqualified from the love of God because you are in the whosoever category. And it also means there's not a single person that's been so good at church stuff that you don't need God. I've got good news for you church people. You can be saved too. And that is good news. That whosoever, no matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been, that whosoever believes in him, believes in him. Now, 
In my opinion, I think it's a little bit unfortunate that, that English New Testaments uh, translate the Greek word pistuo to believe. Because when we think believe, we think believe that. And there's a big old difference between believing in and believing that. You know, like if, if there's a political candidate that is elected, you may believe that they're, that, they're, the, they're in that role. That doesn't necessarily mean you believe in them. My favorite illustration is I believe that there's a college football team down in Gainesville. I do not believe in said team. Do you understand the difference? There's a lot of people that believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and he died on the cross, but you've never put your faith and your trust in him. And you see, in John, if you back up like two chapters, in John chapter one, verse 12, John helps define what believe in means by using a different word called receive. In John 1, 12, it says, but to all who receive him, comma, who believe in his name, comma, he gave the right to become children of God that to believe in and to receive are, are simultaneous. Those, those things are, sin, sin, however you say that, the same word, okay? <laughs> that, that it's a relational kind of word. It's not just like a doctrinal test. It's saying that if I receive, I believe, and if I believe, I receive. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes or trusts, or the way we say it around here, surrenders their life to the lordship of Christ, should not perish, but have eternal life. Should not perish. If you keep on reading, it just lets you know that anybody that does not believe in Jesus is already perishing. And what it means by perish is this, is that a life, an eternal life apart from the love of God, experiencing a conscious torment forever and ever and ever and ever. And listen, I know it is not very popular to preach on hell, but I cannot simultaneously tell you I love you and then withhold the truth from you. And there's a whole lot of people in today's society that say, hey, listen, um, listen, I love Jesus or whatever. I, I, Jesus is okay for you, but I'm gonna go to this different way. But why does it have to be so, so exclusive? How in the world can you say that Jesus is the only way? Oh, because I was quoting Jesus. I mean, I did not make it up. If the Lord would let me edit, I, I, maybe I would call an all skate. All right, everybody in, just kind of be good and, you know. But I'm like the mailman. I don't get to write it, we just deliver it. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus had the audacity to say things like he was a door, and he was the only doorway into the kingdom of God. And here's just the reality, is that one day that door shuts, and when it shuts, you will either into you will either enter into an eternity with the love of God or an eternity enduring the wrath of God. It's just that's just how it goes. And it's not and what he does not say is, and if you're good enough, you get in. That one day that door is shut and that, that time of decision is over. Listen, I was um I was lit, I was in the Atlanta airport one time. <clears throat> you ever miss your flight? I had a layover in Atlanta. You can't get to heaven without going through Atlanta first. I think that's just the truth. And so they dropped me off about 37 miles from where my plane is taking off. This is about two weeks after 9-11, once we all got rolling again, and I am sprinting through the airport. They didn't want you to sprint through the airport two weeks after 9-11. So I'm running as hard as I can. I look around, there's some brothers running with me, okay? And so I was like, all right. So I just did like the neighborhood mom walk, right? As fast as I could. And then, and then I turned that corner in my terminal, and I look, and I can see them shutting my door. 
Like I see it. I can see through it. It's open, but they're shutting. And I'm like, wait. And I run up there and boom, the door is shut. And then I begin to make my case. Well, well, well hey, listen, you got to let me in here. She's like, no, 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 listen, the door is shut. We have security measures. I'm not opening that door again. And I'm like, you can. All you got to do is just do like this. And I'll just, I won't tell anybody. And then I was like, man, I feel like I saw in there. So I feel like a part of me was in there via my sight. And Jesus said, you know, the eye of the lamp of the body, right? You don't know Jesus? Oh, that's what it is, right? And then, and I tried to play the pastor card and the dad card and the Jesus sent me card, whatever. And, and I'm not used to getting no. And she just said, no. And there I am with the door shut and there's nothing I could do to get on my plane. I thought it's leaving. And then these two other cats show up. All right, these guys, they weren't even walking fast. They are many minutes later than me. And I'm like, well, you're gonna let me in now, right? I mean, look, I'm just, and they asked, can we get in? I was like, no, no. All right, let me in because I'm better than them. And you know what she did? Nothing, nothing. The death rate in America right now hovers right around 100%. There will be a day when the door to life is shut and Jesus did not come to condemn you, but to save you. But you and I, apart from Christ, already stand condemned. I could not love you and not tell you that life is only found in Jesus Christ. Eternal life is only found in Jesus Christ. And listen, I get it. Talking about the fears of hell is, in my opinion, not a great way to do evangelism. I was ordained in uh, Southern Baptist. I have a PhD in hellfire and brimstone, okay? I got saved at a fundamentalist camp, and they knew how to take the fun out of fundamentalism, all right? I can remember being eight years old, eight years old, sitting at camp, and this guy gets up on stage and says, anybody ever burned your hand before? Yeah, I burned my hand. Can you imagine your whole body burning like that forever and ever and ever? And you're on fire, but you're not melting all the way, but your eyeballs are melting out of your skull. I want everybody to bow their head, and I was like, oh my gosh. And I could, I'll never forget, this guy said, if, if you were to die tonight, and Jesus said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And in my mind, I was like, man, I don't know. And then he said, if you just said, I don't know, then you're going to hell. And I was like, oh, hell. <laughs> I'm freaking out. I remember thinking, I think my parents paid for this. <laughs> so they were like, everybody's going to stand up. We're going to sing just as I am. And listen, we're all hopped up on Kool-Aid and chicken nuggets and no sleep from summer camp. And then here's the, here's the presentation. So do you kids want to burn in an everlasting fire of hell or you want to go to heaven with mommy and daddy? You're like, well, <laughs> tough call. <laughs> kind of a defiant person, man. I, and I, here's the thing. Everything he said was true. It was, and I knew it. And I'm freaking out. And so we all stood up to respond and I walked out the back instead of the front. Southern Baptist, you can only walk forward. You walk out the back, they were like, backslider. And they came after me. And they got me out, cornered me out in the deal. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm eight or nine years old, crying. They were like, why are you crying? I was like, I don't want to go to hell. <laughs> and I was like, you want Jesus? I want my mom. That's what I said, okay? <clears throat> so, but the Bible says, the Bible says, it's the kindness of the Lord that draws us to repentance. Kindness of the Lord that draws us to repentance. Hey, look, hell is hot forever is a long time. It is a real, real reality. Everybody spends forever somewhere. Till my dying day, I will beg and plead and present and declare the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news is this, is that he didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. God so loved you that he sent his one and only son that whosoever, that means you, 
that whosoever would believe or trust or surrender their life to the Lordship of Christ would not perish, but would have eternal life, and that eternal life could begin right now. And you might think, God, that sounds narrow, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it does. But another way to think about it is this, is that everybody's invited. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, there's not like a special race, there's no caste system. Everybody's invited. That everybody gets in the same way. There's not a secret passage for this group and that group. You can't pay them off. Everybody gets in the same way and the price has already been paid by Christ at the cross. When he says, it is finished, the price for your admission to heaven was paid fully and finally at the cross. So John 3.16 could be summed up this way, that God gave, or God loved, so God gave. And if we believe, then we receive eternal life. That God loved, so God gave. And if we believe, that's the key word, if we believe, then we receive eternal life. You're like, okay, well, what does it mean to believe, to have faith? Is it like a feeling? Is it a choice? What is it? See, that word, in, again, in Greek is pastuo. Trust might be a better word. The way Coach Bully, the guy that led me to Christ, the way he'd explained it to me, he said it was like sitting on a stool. He said it starts with this, that you admit that you're a sinner, that you admit that I'm not just a mistaker, that my problems aren't just external, but there's something inside of me. Nobody's lied to me more than me. Nobody's broken more promises to me than me. In fact, I mean, forget God's law, don't really, but you can't even keep your own law, right? Can we agree there? Have you ever promised I will never, ever, ever, ever do that again? Twice? Of course. Because there's something wrong on the inside. We admit that we're sinners. and That we believe, trust, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that counted for me. I don't know how to fully explain it, but we trust, we trust. Even if we've got doubts and unanswered questions and God, why did you do this? That's okay. But we believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that counted for me. No matter how good you think you are or bad you think you've been. And then you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so, what Coach Lee did with the stool is he said, listen, you can believe that there's a stool here and you can know a lot of things about it. And you can show up every week and, and sing songs about the wood grain, about its incredible construction. And you can have no doubt that it is here and you can have all kinds of questions about who made it and how it was made. That's all fine. But to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ is like shifting the weight of who you are off of your two feet and fully shifting it onto this stool so that it holds you. And now it's not a little bit of you and a little bit of stool. You see, there are critics of Christianity that say, why would you be a Christian? It's like a crutch. I'm like, no, 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 Christianity is not a crutch. It is a stretcher. It is totally, I cannot hobble into heaven. I've got to quit, give up, die to myself. And Jesus has to carry me on in. And so the thing that shifted for me is at that same camp where they told us about burning in hell, a few years later, Coach Lee took over and he did things differently. And on the last night of camp, they would reenact the crucifixion of Christ. And it was crazy. It was a bunch of rednecks in Bennettsville, South Carolina, doing like a passion play. And I'm telling you, they nailed Jesus to the cross. He says, it is finished. The lights went out. When they came back up, there was an empty cross. And then Coach Lee told us about the resurrection of Christ. And then he said... <clears throat> For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son and he pointed at an empty cross that God gave his only begotten son and whoever 
would shift the weight off of their own life and shift it onto the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that you would have eternal life, that you would just admit, God, I need a Savior because I'm a sinner, that I believe when you died on the cross, it counted for me. And right now, just like Romans 10, 9 says, right now I confess you as my Lord and Savior, and you'll be reborn. So I want to give you that same invitation Coach Lee gave me a bunch of years ago and the same invitation that Jesus gave Nicodemus 2,000 years ago. So I would ask that you close your eyes and you bow your head. And the only reason we do this, there's nothing spiritual about that posture, is because you are going to walk out of this place and you are going to walk into another week of distractions. So maybe just for the next couple of minutes, you would just get focused on the God that loved you so much that he sent his son for you. If you're a Christian, I would invite you to just preach the gospel to yourself right now once again. Remind yourself of the love of God on a rescue mission for you. And if you've never surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and for the very first time, God somehow miraculously has softened your heart, the scales have fallen off your eyes, and for the first time, you really understand at a heart and soul level, then just admit it. You can just say whatever words you want to. You don't have to repeat after me. But you just say, God, I need a Savior. I admit that. And I believe that when Jesus died on the cross, it counted for me. And so, God, in this moment, I confess God, I surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I would just ask, if you've done this in this moment, would you just lift your hand high to say, God, here I am. I surrender my life to your Lordship. God, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God, I believe that when you died on the cross, it counted for me. And Jesus, I confess you as my Lord. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and we praise you that you did not send your Son to condemn us, but to save us. And God, I thank you that your love pours out into us and you demonstrated it once and for all at the cross. And Lord, I thank you that for salvation, even in this place, in this moment. And God, we love you. We love you so much because you love us first. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you please stand to your feet and we're gonna respond. In my opinion, this is as important as it gets in our worship unto God, because this is the point where now now you respond to the gospel that you've heard. We respond by singing together. And the reason that we sing, I want you to think about it like the book of Psalms, like prayers that the whole church sings together. So we could all be praying and saying and singing the same thing at the same time to the one true God. And we're gonna sing together before all things. It's been like an anthem for us lately. And... We respond to God and worship him with our finances. If you're a regular here, we bring our first and our best, our tithes and our offerings to God because he loved us first by giving us his best in Jesus Christ. And then when Jesus says it is finished, there's this curtain torn in the temple between the people of God and the presence of God. And because he is our great high priest, we get all access pass to our heavenly father who happens to be the king of the universe. And he says, pray to me, bring it to me. Ask me again, cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. That's what the prayer time at the altar is all about, by the blood of Jesus Christ. So let us respond.